0: If you want to keep that um, reading open in front of you, I think you might uh, find that helpful. I was saying last week that uh, in Psalm 1, we get given the sort of key to understand the nature of the whole songbook, and that if Psalms is an album, then Psalm 1 is sort of the lead single that would be put out, and it told us from the very first verse uh, blessed or happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked but walks in the way of the Lord, and so what the songbook is is offering is is a glimpse into w- what it would mean and what it would look like to actually walk in that sort of happiness of knowing God and that might be in some ways confusing when some of the songs like today 's one obviously include a lot of engagement with frustration and doubts. Um, And things like this. What do we do in those moments where we don't feel like we're happy? We don't feel blessed. Where actually we face trouble. And where God seems to be silent and maybe inactive. And so Psalm 40 will give us our first sort of glimpse into one of those kind of moments. One of those moments where the floor has fallen through. And what do you do now? And what does faith look like in a moment in which it feels as though everything has sort of broken? I wonder if I asked you uh, what the most famous psalm was, what you would say. Perhaps it could be Psalm 23, the Lord's my shepherd. Perhaps Psalm 139, Oh Lord you've searched me and you've known me when I sit down, when I rise up. Or maybe even Psalm 2, one of the most Often quoted in the New Testament, why did nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Well, the most famous psalm is Psalm 14, because it became a single and the last track on the album War by U2, and has been played for thirty uh, something, maybe even more. I have difficulty now working back <laughs> to those states. Something years has been played live to millions and millions of people. But listen to how it came about. It says, when we were making our third record, this is, this is Bono speaking, uh, the war LP, we were being thrown out of the studio by the studio manager because we'd overrun or something, and we had one more song to do. We wrote this song in about 10 minutes. We recorded it in about 10 minutes. We mixed it in about 10 minutes, and we played it then for another 10 minutes, and that's nothing to do why it's, with why it's called 40. 40. In fact, in search of some lyrics for a, a rough demo that they had needing a last track to, uh, to be cut because they have the next band waiting for the studio time and actually sat outside uh, the glass looking in on them. And you always, you know, you know that sort of sense of pressure uh, in life when you know, you're just trying to finish something up and you know the next person's there and you're desperately sweating away to try and get it finished off. As they're trying to get this track sort of put together that has no words, Bono opens his Bible and turns to Psalm 40. And so word for word basically sings uh, the opening of the psalm. And this wonderful sort of story of just providence, of complete chance, of here they are just needing something quickly, and here's where it opens to. God's word gets out to millions upon millions of people. And so Psalm 40 is by far and away, whether you knew it or not, the most famous psalm to have ever been written. And it has this surprising structure. I don't know if you'll uh, see that as you look down to it, that it begins with thanksgiving and ends with him asking for something again. And it flips the sort of expected order that, you know, in some of the other Psalms, we we'll get used to the idea of the petition coming and then the thanksgiving because God gave it. But here we have the opposite. We have the psalmist looking back David looking back and saying God thank you for all that you have done for me and because of all that you have done for me I know that I can come to you again and ask you right now for what I need here and it teaches us something really important in how we might approach God we will see three things here firstly we see how to wait well look at verses one to five there with me what David shows us here is how to wait well. There's a good waiting, and then there's the bad waiting in life. We all have times in which we find ourselves having to wait for something, and nobody is particularly good at waiting. And I know as I say that, you might be thinking about yourself and thinking, well, actually, I'm really good at waiting. But what I would put to you is you're good at waiting for things that you're not emotionally invested in. If you find something that you're emotionally invested in that means something that's important to you, you're not good at waiting, and nor am I. If it's something that you really care about, it's not easy to wait. You ask that question, how long, oh Lord, how long will it be? If you're an England supporter today, you'll be thinking, how long? And the answer is 55 years. If you're a Scotland fan or a Welsh fan, or an Italian fan, or a French fan, or anyone else, you think, how long will we have to hear English people bragging about this if they do win? How long, oh Lord, will we wait? Either way, we ask that question about things that we're invested in. It's not easy to wait, is it? And yet there's a good waiting and there's a bad waiting whilst we wait. The ultimate example of bad waiting, perhaps, comes in the sitcom Friends. You know, if if you've seen it before, you remember. If not, uh, Ross and Rachel decide to go on a break, and there's a bad waiting. Because so what does he go do? He goes straight If he if he goes and has a sort of rebound relationship, that that will deal with it. Coins the catchphrase that then goes throughout years. We were on a break. There's a good waiting, and then there's a bad waiting. David wants to give us. A model of good waiting. He says, "I waited patiently for the Lord," and he's engaging with this sort of pain of waiting for God when, when we feel He hasn't heard, when we feel that He's not doing anything—is He even there? Isn't that a hard moment? Don't you know that pain of feeling that you're waiting upon God, where you call to Him and, and and it feels as though your words just bounce back off the walls. It seems there is no reply. I waited patiently for the Lord. In fact, actually, what it really says in, in Hebrew, of course, originally here, the Old Testament books are written in Hebrew and then retranslated into, into English in our day via Greek as well. Uh, what it says is, I waited, waited. And so nobody really knows what to do with that. How do you translate that? <laughs> I waited, waited. And so it could be put, I waited patiently. Or it could be put, as other versions put I waited and I waited. And so we don't really know what, what is the focus of David here. Is, he, is, he, is the focus that he's trying to say, I waited patiently? And it's about how he waited. Or is it about how long he waited? I waited and I waited. We don't really know. But surely, probably both things are true that he waited and he waited. And yet he waited, and there was a patience in a way to it. There was a way in which he waited. So how do we wait well? Well, firstly, don't give up. He's worth waiting for. I waited patiently for the Lord, and he inclined to me. He moved towards me. In fact, actually, it's, he, he stoops down like, like a parent or a teacher uh, with a child. He, he stoops down, he, he kneels down to listen. I can't hear from up here. I need to come to your level to hear you. He stoops down to me to hear me. And he heard my cry. He's a good father who, who hears, who, who comes near to hear from you. So wait for him. Don't give up. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, it tells us, out of the miry bog and set my feet upon a rock, making my step secure. The, the, the words there it won't, of course, Im- immediately occur to you, but the pit of destruction, the word that's used there, it comes from the root shale, a word that you'll see very often throughout the Psalms. This pit of destruction. And he, he puts it here in this imagery that it's, it's a place where death seems to invade and, and, and seems to loom over life. It's a place in which death is sort of overshadowing things and ruining the life that you're even supposed to be living. And another way that he puts it is that it, it's like a bog that it, it, it's like this, uh, it sucks you in. It, 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 the more you struggle, the, the deeper you find yourself going. And if you've ever found your sort of footing uh, as you go out on a hike getting into a bog, you know that sort of a bit of panic as that first foot goes in, you oh my goodness. Get, but, it, but as you struggle here to try and get out, actually the deeper that you get, nothing you do seems to be able to work to get you out of it. And you can't see a way forwards. And yet in this moment, God has rescued him and placed his feet on solid ground, put a new song in his mouth, even he says here, where he might have been perhaps singing the blues, where he might have been singing of lament and and pain and and emptiness and and lostness and just that feeling of, you know, in in, in the depths of despair and depression. Actually, it's not even pain, it's nothingness. It's numbness. It's I don't know what what to feel to say. I have just nothing. It's just empty it's listening to Radiohead for sort of more than 20 minutes. You're a band I love, but it should come with a health warning because, you know, you listen to the full album and by the end of it, you, you're in a, even if you're the happiest place before it, you, you know, you're re- really assessing your life decisions again. He's it's, it's gone from a place of singing Radiohead to, to here he is he's in the place of singing joy, songs of God's love and deliverance how to wait well, well, firstly, don't give up. Secondly, let God's past provision inform your present circumstances. Look at how he does that here. We've said that already, that from the beginning, actually, David here finds hope in all that God had done. He starts off not with his present problems, but the past deliverance of God, and that shapes the way in which he then comes before God with his present need, the past deliverance, decides how David is going to view the present difficulty he's in, which as we get to it, it you know, is pretty bad. You know, it's a pretty bad spot he's in, but he doesn't let the spot that he's in inform the way that he sees God and the way that even he sees his circumstances. He views his circumstances through the lens of God's past provision. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust here we're told and it's very so you might recognize that so it's very very similar isn't it to psalm 1 blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked in the way of the lord blessed is the man who makes the lord his trust how to wait well thirdly trust in god not yourself and here we see that fleshed out a little bit more look at verse 5 there with me you've multiplied oh my god you're one of us Oh sorry, it's verse four I should have looked up. Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who doesn't turn to the proud, to those who go astray after a lie. One of the ways in which you can trust in yourself is to not not just trust in your your own ability to get yourself out of the situation, but as was so often uh, the problem in Israel's history was to trust in people around them. That if we could make, you know, and and Israel finds this, time and time again, as they're in difficulties, as as foreign invading armies sort of encompass them and surround them and even take over their land, that they are so tempted, even though it was God who had promised to give them a land and it was God who enabled them to take the land. And it must have been God because the way they, they did it was to encircle a city with trumpets and walls fell down. And no matter how you might want to try and rationalize that with some sort of strange science, and maybe that was true, and maybe that was the part of it, um, I don't read or see too many other Netflix documentaries about great battles in which the army came out with a tiny number of people with trumpets, thinking that that was in any way, shape, or form going to be intimidating or successful. God has given them that loud and said, the battle is the Lord's, just just in case, You uh, might need to be forgetful about this. Just in case you might be forgetful, Gideon goes with 300 soldiers, not 300 great soldiers. You know, you watch the film 300 and, uh, you know, they're ripped and they're beasts. And you think, well, yeah, I could sort of see how maybe that would work out. You know, no, this is 300 incompetent soldiers uh, tested by the fact that as they go to stoop down to drink, they're not on guard to defend themselves like any good soldier would be. No, these are the guys who've just come off of the desk because they've been told to, and here they are. And yet, time and time and time again, Israel will think that their greatest hope lies in them putting together a political deal with other nations. That What we need to do is to strike a bargain with people. We trust in our ability to be able to strike a bargain to manage the situation, I can manage my environment and my circumstances. I can manage my behavior. Now, blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust. Why? You've multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us. You've seen the fruit of God's work. We can trust in him because we can look to all that he's done and this is something that's not just true for me it's true for all of us you've multiplied oh my god your wondrous deeds and thoughts towards us this is how he is with all of his children so that none will compare with you i'll proclaim and tell of them he tells us how to wait well well firstly don't give up secondly let god's past provision inform your your present circumstances thirdly trust in god and not yourself and fourthly praise him, praise him in the midst of that. Why does David give us this? Why does the psalmist give us this here? Well, he wants to encourage us to wait well too, firstly, but secondly, he's reminding himself. He's reminding himself whilst he waits again. This isn't just something that that David has done once, it's something that he's doing now as he writes it to you. He can look back and reflect on times in which he's cried out and out and had to wait, and then God is delivered. But it's happening to him even as he writes. He's writing it for us, but also himself. Sometimes you end up preaching what you need to hear. We wait well. Secondly, the psalmist answers us here, how to be spiritual. And even as I sort of say that term, perhaps you you know there's a little bit of you that might be a bit yeah. because in some ways you know spirituals a term that's kind of been co opted and kind of taken by this sort of new age movement, isn't it? And and that's a shame because following God is meant to be a spiritual journey. We we shouldn't be less spiritual. It's about being truly spiritual. It's about in what places do you find it and how does that really work itself out and what is true and what is not uh, there's a great comedian called uh jp sears he makes uh, uh these funny sort of satirical videos I-, I can't vouch for the other ones so you know if you go ahead and watch them and are offended by some of the others i, I have seen those ones but he does a funny one on how to be uh, ultra spiritual and actually uh, underneath the humor is a something of a critique of pop spirituality. He says this, uh, first what you need to understand is that being ultra spiritual has nothing to do with actually being spiritual, because no one even knows what that actually is. Being ultra spiritual means you look spiritual. And how would that have looked here for people in David's day? How would people maybe be able to appear to be spiritual, but not be spiritual? Well, Surely it would be to look right, to be in the right place, to be doing the right things, to be saying the right words, whether you mean it or not. Not so different to today, perhaps. Verse 6 tells us here, sacrifice and offering you've not desired, but you've given me an open ear. And in one sense, this is a bit confusing, the next couple of verses, isn't it? Sacrifice and offering you've not desired. It's a bit confusing because actually God had asked for sacrifices to be made. So is he now just sort of, you know, had second thoughts about it and realized, actually, you know, maybe that wasn't so good. Maybe now he's changing his mind. How do we make sense of that? Well, how can it be that God could institute sacrifices and yet... It be said that he's not desired them and not required them. What was the point of the sacrifices? Well, let me try to give you a little bit of a summary for you to try to help you along. Well, firstly, they're a concession. The sacrifices exist because obedience didn't. Okay, plan A is not for God to have had animal sacrifices. They're a concession for the fact that humanity is not obedient. Uh, secondly, they're gracious That is, they're a gracious answer to human disobedience, uh, and they provide a way in which actually people can be made right before God. But thirdly, and this is important, they're subsidized. What do I mean? Well, that's that they're not an equal trade, and they never were. The animal sacrifices were never an equal trade. So for human disobedience against God, an equal trade isn't the life of an animal. God is graciously accepting that as a trade but it's not actually equal. There's no part of that that's really a fair trade at all. They're substitutionary. That is that they provide a way by which actually humans may not die and yet something else has to die. They're symbolic. Sacrifice has never changed a person preacher to the Hebrews will tell us that in his letter, that, you know, these sacrifices are offered, but they don't change a person in their substance, in who they are. They change your standing before God, but they don't change your substance. And lastly, they're temporary. They only last until the next time. And so God doesn't derive pleasure from them. He doesn't desire sacrifices and certainly not empty sacrifices, it's just an empty ritual. You're just doing it because you know it's the thing to do. You know it's the thing that everybody else does. You just want to fit in. And the context for David's reflection here may well come from the story of Saul. And that may well be where the source of David's tension is of feeling that actually his enemies are around him and that he's, he's at the point, perhaps, of death. as Saul, the king who has been rejected by God, and David, the one who's been anointed by God, but is not yet king. And Saul is desperately trying to hold him down, and finding ways in which he may even possibly be able to sort of die in the line of duty, if, if so be it, so that he can avoid actually losing his power. Saul has been offering empty sacrifices. He's been disobeying God and leading the people into disobeying. You can read of it in 1 Samuel 15. He's given clear instructions to go and to take over a piece of land and to of the people there. Uh, Everything is to be devoted to destruction. He's not to keep trinkets and trophies of it. It's a completely shameful episode in which God has warned these people numerous times, and they have not left their wickedness. In fact, they've continued to do so. It's a society that's completely depraved from top to bottom, where almost, and it's very hard to wrap your mind around, but there's an element where it almost starts to be a thing that to not exist in it is a grace than to have to live within it. And God has used his people to go and to pronounce judgment upon that and and to avenge the cries of the oppressed. And Saul has not done that. He has gone and he's taken the land, but he's also taken the trophies. He's taken the king as a sort of trophy of his power that he can say, I'm the one who has defeated him. And here he is and parade him out. And now instead of owning up to what he's done, he'll say, "Other oh, people made me do it. He's erected a statue to himself and he's taken the place of the priests and led them in worship and in sacrifices that he was not to do and that he knew. And his response to Samuel, as Samuel hears of it, is simply just, I'm really sorry. Can you go and tell the people, let's, let's go and do the offering and then just restore me before the people and we'll, we'll carry on. And Samuel will say, no, no, God's rejected you. God's rejected your empty sacrifices. Wouldn't it be better for you to have been obedient than to have offered him empty sacrifices? And that seems to be where David is quoting from in that story. And it seems to be the source of his trouble that here he has the king with all the power, but none of the blessing and anointing from God got him on the run running for his life so how does he make sense of his place he says in the scroll of the book it's written of me so he turns to the scriptures to understand firstly how to be spiritual listen to God listen to God in his word they say I desire to do your will oh my God your law is in my heart it's shorthand from saying your word is in my heart It's not saying that he always gets it right. We know that from the life of David, don't we? That he makes some really major mistakes in his life. Some mistakes that for the most of us, we'll never make. And that's great. And that's that's pleasing. And yet, there's something about David that even though he'll make these really terrible mistakes at times, there's something about him that's so right. That he has this desire to do God's will. His heart is in the right place desires to do in fact actually the way that we make sense of it even for ourselves we can read Romans 7 and hear of that struggle in Paul if I know what's right I want to do what's right I love what's right and yet I find myself not always doing it and it frustrates me because I want to do what's right I really do but I find myself incapable and I know what's wrong and I hate what's wrong and I don't want to do what's wrong and yet I find myself somehow still doing it and I hate that I do And I don't want to do it I didn't mean to do it I still do. And what we find is, is not a source of desperation and despair, but hope. This is the fight. This is the struggle. It's not about always getting it right, but it's about being in the fight of saying, you know what? I know what's right. I want to do what's right. I'm, I'm trying with everything within me to keep to it. David desires to do God's will. His word is in his heart. How to be spiritual. Secondly, desire to do his will that's far better than all rituals saying the right thing doing the right thing, being in the right place at the right time but not but not desired to do. Not, glad news of the deliverance he's turned now to celebrate all that god's done is this something of his song Did he spoke about it? he spoke about being given a new song in his heart is this some of it that he's told the glad news of the deliverance the congregation here, and you know, you find this, that for those of us, you know, where we're delivered from great distress, and problems, and troubles, and strife, some of them self-inflicted, some of them couldn't do anything much about, there's this great well from which to draw, to celebrate all of God's work, how to be spiritual, thirdly, praise God's works. listen to God, desire to do his will, praise his works. Now he turns to God here, verse 11, I will not restrain your mercy from me. Just as David says of himself, he's not restrained his lips from praising God. God will not restrain his mercy from him. He won't be able to hold it back. It's something about who God is that he can't but help to be good, to be generous, to be loving, to be gracious, to be compassionate, to be merciful. God will continue to uphold him and protect him, which is good because He's in a disastrous place again right now. Look at verse 12. Evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me and I can't see. There's evils and sins. There's some that are his fault, some that are not his fault. Some of it is evil people surrounding him, encompassing him to try to kill him, like Saul and his minions. Some of it is David's own sin and things that he can recognize himself and say, you know what, I've brought this upon myself. It's a little bit of both. He's surrounded and overtaken and at the same time he can't think to be able to number them and he can't bear to look at them. to See, evils have encompassed me beyond number. Iniquities have overtaken me and I cannot see and my heart fails me. For all he's doing to wait well, there's still this recognition that it's still painful. And Perhaps you'll know that too. Even as we've been thinking about it, it's thinking you know, you can talk about waiting well, you can talk about trying to you know be truly spiritual, stuff. It doesn't change the fact that it still hurts. No, you're quite right. It still hurts. Song, a uh, bittersweet symphony by the verb. He says, uh, "Well, I've never prayed, but tonight I'm on my knees. Yeah, I need to hear some sounds that recognise the pain in me." And for all that is true of what David's saying, it's not to downplay that it still hurts. It's still hard. And so David concludes by asking him, deliver me again. We see how to wait well, we see how to be truly spiritual, and now we see him asking to be delivered again. Having put his circumstances uh, in the sort of perspective of his past experience of God's grace and deliverance, now he comes to petition God for his Present crisis. Look at verse thirteen. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. O Lord, make haste to help me. Picks up from where he began. How long, Lord, waited patiently. He had waited and waited, and now he says, "Make haste." It, It shows that waiting well is not the same as being in some sort of disconnected, dishonest, zen state that says, oh, you know, I really didn't feel it at all. Everything was good. Everything was peace. Everything was calm. No. That's just disconnecting from your reality, isn't it? I've Waited and waited. But Lord, make haste. Don't make the psalmist to be someone so different to you. Don't make David to be some character so far off from you. He's more like you than you'd ever know. Don't make him so far off you can't identify with him. You can't understand where he's coming from. He feels the pain too and will say, make haste, hurry up. I wonder if there's a sense or a feeling there, of wondering whether there's a problem, whether there's a kind of uh, a dissonance there that on the one hand you will say he's waited and waited he's waited patiently he's given this encouragement to wait well and how to be spiritual and yet now he's saying make haste has it really made a difference to David then or is it just showing that he will just flip flop between these two different feelings that it doesn't it's if anything's shown in these last few verses that it doesn't really work that all that you can say about waiting well and being truly spiritual it doesn't really work because you still wind up in a place of saying Lord make haste Well, what we find is that there's a paradox in faith, isn't there? There's a paradox here that waiting well and knowing that God will deliver doesn't mean you won't feel the frustration of the wait. It doesn't mean you won't also say, "Make haste," or like Paul will end one of his letters saying, "Maranatha, Lord, come! Will come now." This is the reality of living in the sort of now and not yet of God's kingdom. That there's so much now that we taste and we savor and we enjoy and we're blessed by. And yet there's so much that we're waiting for that isn't quite yet, that is to come. That's real faith. Real faith has that paradox. As the psalm begins to come to its conclusion here. He has this, with this plea, David looks around to these four different groups. I don't know if you notice them there. Firstly, he looks around to those oppressing him. Look at verse 14 there. Let those be uh, put to shame who turned their back and, and brought me to dishonor. David asks for salvation from those who are seeking his life. We've said that is Saul the king, the one with the most power to him in, in David's little world seeking his life. Let me be spared. That he may be spared and they may be stopped and they may be shamed. He looks to those oppressing him. Secondly, he looks to those judging him, doesn't he? Look at verse 15 there. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, aha, aha. You know, some people in life, isn't there, who just love a crisis. They come alive in a time of crisis. Some of them for good. And some of them just come alive in a crisis for somebody else and that's the key bit of it <laughs> they love it when it's a crisis for somebody else and it becomes a chance to be able to make a judgment on another person and to think well you know how much did they bring on upon themselves you know if they'd only done that and you know if it was me what I would have done was this some people love crisis for another person don't they It's a lot of the conversation in an office at times, isn't it? David asks for deliverance from those who would look at him and those who would judge his circumstances and say, well, maybe it's his fault. What did he do to cause it? And so we asked that the tables would be turned here. And to put it on the other hand, doesn't it feel so good when that happens? When you've gone from the place of those judging you for what's going on and saying, well, you must have brought it upon yourself. You must have done something to it. it. Must be something about the way that you are. And then it gets flipped. You're vindicated. Isn't that a seductively good feeling? To feel now I can judge the one who judged me. And to think, ha, ah, how stupid you were for thinking that. It's been shown that I was right after all. He looks to those judging him. Thirdly, he looks to those needing help. Look at verse 16 there. That may all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. He turns his attention to others. He's not just making this plea for himself, though, of course, he, he is concerned for his own situation there. He's asking it for all who would need help. You know, you're not alone. There's people all around you going through the very same things. Even though... You don't think so, even though you think that it's only you. There are all kinds of people all around you going through very much the same things, needing the same help. You're not alone. Sometimes one of the most isolating things in those moments of of pain and frustration and grief, isn't it, is the feeling that it's only me feeling this. No, No one will know. No one will understand. No one will be able to help because they don't know what it's like. And yet they do, they do, more than you may know. You're not alone. So David asks for all those needing help. And then lastly, he asks for himself here, verse 17. As for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You're my help and my deliverer. Don't delay, oh my God. He Ends with that same plea that's directed the song. You're my help. Please help me. And again, don't delay. Please make it quick. This psalm here engages and and empathizes with you with the reality that we we all know of, of God's sometimes silence and those moments in which we face great troubles around us, where we're waiting for Him to speak, where we're waiting for Him to work. And it gives us these lessons on waiting well, on not giving up, on letting God's past provision inform our, our present circumstances, of, of trusting God and, and not ourselves and our own ability to pull ourselves out of the mire, and of praising him, of of knowing what it is to really pursue a spiritual journey with Christ that is, that is true spirituality, is listening to him, his word, that is desiring to do his will, that is praising his works. But, you may say, what about an answer to the question? How long, O Lord? When will he deliver? When will we see that? When will we feel as though we find an answer? Well, we find a little later on in Hebrews that Jesus is the fulfillment of David's cries here. In Hebrews 10, the preacher will will, uh, quote from these verses from this psalm. And where David asks, how long, O Lord, how long will we have to wait? Will we have to sing this song of, of waiting for your deliverance here? When will God save us from our distress? The preacher to the Hebrews will tell us that Jesus comes to save us from distress. And because those sacrifices were not enough, comes and he gives us himself up for us so that we don't have to keep asking how long he'll speak of how sacrifices were offered a day after day that could never perfect the heart of the worshiper they could never do something about your substance they could only ever do something symbolic about the way you stood before God but now Jesus one time does something that changes you forever so that The sacrifice of Jesus here is is gracious, that Jesus' sacrifice, like the animal sacrifices, is is gracious, that we, we don't do anything to deserve it, that he does it, in fact, when we're still enemies, that it's still substitutionary, that just as the lamb dies on behalf of the offerer so that the offerer wouldn't die, Jesus dies for you so that you wouldn't have to die. He dies the death you should have died. And just as before, you know, uh, before there was the problem that uh, sacrifices were not a fair trade, they're a concession, but now they're equitable. Through Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice actually isn't reliant upon God being willing to be shortchanged. Now an offering has been made that far outstrips the value of the greatest depths of our sin, Whereas before it was just symbolic, now there's something substantial. The offering of Christ, what it offers to do for you this morning is that it's not just some sort of token symbolic offering that will just sort of mark out visibly your change of status with God. But now this is something that substantially changes who you are so that you would be able to this morning be able to say like, David, I desire to do your will law is in my heart because something has changed where something could never change before within you because it was only symbolic now it's substance now something really has changed where before it was temporary and you knew that it was only really going to last until the next time this is permanent christ offers himself for you one time for all this is no quick fix This doesn't wear off. This is permanent. One offering, one time, for all, covering all. How long? No longer. That's the word we see in Christ. We can look to this psalm and find a fulfillment that even David himself was still waiting for. In Christ, we can see no longer no longer. Your deliverer is here. He's been. He will be back again. You will wait no longer. We're going to uh, hear that psalm now. I mentioned to you at the beginning about